0: This is a diet of Brussels, and today we're going to try something different again. Um, so far uh, over the last, I think it's eight years actually, uh, of doing this podcast, uh, I've been doing it myself, but uh, in a, a bold new direction, uh, I've got a, what I will say is a co-host, uh, David Maloney, who is uh, joining us. Say hello, David. Hi, Simon. Good to be here uh so david is uh the uh researcher on the s- fellowship with the UK and the changing europe that i hold uh at the moment and so we're both uh, at the open university and uh as you all know from previous episodes we're looking at uh the Development of the UK EU relationship uh, after Brexit. So, David is going to be doing lots of interesting things, and you're going to hear about those in the coming uh, months and, well, almost years, in fact. Um, but what we thought we would do as part of that work is do episodes together, talking about particular issues, thinking about how that reflects on uh, the way in which that relationship is developing. So, today, We're going to be talking about uh, migration and smart borders and also thinking about uh, bilateral relations. And this is off the back of a visit from uh, the Italian prime minister, Giorgio Maloney, to number 10 back in late April. uh, So about a month ago. But it's also relevant today because we're recording on the 1st of June and uh, Rishi Sunak is in Kisinau, uh in Moldova at uh, the European political community where there is going to be we understand an announcement about uh, cooperation with uh, Bulgaria um, and indeed Moldova on uh, very similar kinds of issues. So whilst we're going to talk more about the Italian case because we think there's a lot there Um, We are actually thinking of this in a broader sense, so we're going to kind of get into that. Um, David, um, do you want to just kind of talk us through about Maloney's visit and about the the Memorandum of Understanding that came out of that?
1: Well, the Prime Minister of Italy, Giorgio Maloney, visited London on the 27th of April 2023. And why she visited uh, London was basically to sign this Memorandum of Understanding, And this Memorandum of Understanding had been in the works for quite some time. There had been a bit of negotiations between the United Kingdom and her predecessors as well, Draghi and so on, uh, with regards to strengthening a bilateral relationship between Italy and the United Kingdom post the United Kingdom's exit from the European Union. Um, And what's interesting within the Memorandum of Understanding is that there is a section relation to migration, which is interesting insofar as that migration, of course, has been a hot topic within the European Union, uh, when the United Kingdom was a member of the European Union, notably 2015-2016, when of course we had that the migration crisis of 2015-2016, and has been a very salient issue and has had all of these uh, spillover effects from that crisis, notably of course the rise of political parties on the right, notably of course Fratelli d'Italia, which of course is Giorgio Maloney's uh, political party. So, uh, which now of course is the leading party in government and the coalition of the center right uh leading party of the centre right uh coalition government so uh, why it is interesting that so far as firstly it's just generally interesting in that context because you've had fratelli d'italia wouldn't be here without the 2015-2016 migration crisis if we were to trace the roots all the way back uh from 2015-2016 uh, to now and the development of the Uh, Fratellite Italia's support, etc. But more generally, it's interesting because, of course, the European Union is facing this uh, wave of migration now from really since 2015, 2016. It went down slightly during COVID when the European Union was locked down. And now what we are facing is an increase in number of arrivals of people. And this is notable too uh, in the context of the instrumentalization of migration, which was notable during the 2021 to 2022 uh, border crisis between Poland and Belarus. So that's just kind of gives you a background to that. And it has been really since 2016, a big shift within Brussels and amongst the capitals from a very humanitarian aspect In regards to how to handle migration to a very much security orientated approach. Uh, Traditional member states that have focused very much on a humanitarian aspect such as Sweden etc have very much focused or gravitated towards this very much security-based approach and that was one of the reasons why Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney was elected prime minister of our center right uh, coalition was elected i should say along with liga of course and uh, forza italia so migration has been coming an increasingly salient issue for uh italian citizens because italy of course is one of the frontline member states it's uh, in the central mediterranean route uh, the eastern mediterranean route which was the main route into the european union during the 2015-2016 migration crisis uh, was shut down by the turkish government, though sometimes that valve is released anytime ANCRA wants to put a bit of pressure on the European Union. So that's just kind of the general background to that. And of course, the memorandum of understanding pivots quite nicely to what is happening within the United Kingdom as well. So obviously, migration has been a hot topic, specifically, of course, the crossings uh, from France across the Channel into the United Kingdom. So it's, I think it's a very clear understanding in number 10 Downing Street that What you're seeing here is that, obviously, migration and the roots of migration, the source of migration, doesn't come from France. And it comes, obviously, mainly from Europe. And one of the main points of entry to the European Union via migration is through that central Mediterranean route. So... has been an issue obviously for the united kingdom and it's also an issue for the italians as well so what the memorandum of understanding really gets into is basically trying to formalize a agreement or at least an understanding you would say uh that the italians really work in the context of meeting its obligations to process those who arrive into italy so under the dublin three regulation which is the current body of legislation with regards to migration in terms of processing uh, those who wish to enter the European Union and wish to claim asylum, you are to do so in the first country that you arrive in. So obviously frontline member states, such as Italy, Malta, Greece, Spain too, to a degree, uh, are on the front line due to their geographical position. And this puts uh, pressure on their uh, asylum processes. Institutions, agencies, etc. So there has been a view within Brussels for some time that some of these member states like to not be too rigorous in terms of processing. The processing is quite long, and it is not, how would I put it, it is not bad for the Italian government to allow people to cross the border from Italy into France, same with Spain into France and of course France, who clearly is a magnet for one of these destination countries, uh, would very much like these people to leave. So you do have this game that's been played in Brussels at the moment and has been played also by the member states capitals for quite some time about the processing systems, about dragging their feet, etc. So the attempt here by Rishi Sunak is basically to try and get the Italians to agree to fully implementing uh dublin three and also really focusing on getting the member state as it says responsible for examining the asylum application to actually do so and that in that case is italy so very much a focus on getting the italians to agree to that and also to work with frontex as well and the real aim here of course is that uh clearly if we look at the context again of the channel crossings the french are not going to make too much of an effort of for people or trying to prevent people leaving its country the french like every other member state is more focused on preventing people entering rather than exiting so this is a realization clearly by the sunak administration that we really the french won't be able to do too much about this in the end so let's try and move this closer to the source to the entry point in that case is italy
0: i think yeah it's worth just unpacking this because this has been a a long standing tension in the way that the EU has engaged with this issue. And it it really was kind of the end of the Cold War, large scale movements across Europe that that really saw the EU get into this field uh, of uh, activity. And I think that the the tension, as you're saying, is that on the one hand, you've got migrants who have got places that they think they want to go to I and mean, often they don't have necessarily strong views about where they they want to end up you know that it's as much about escaping from destitution or from violence as much as anything but you know maybe that they have family connections other family members who have made this uh, journey uh and so they want to kind of get to places uh that they've heard about or that they have a, a positive impression of um, which isn't necessarily the same as the first place that they enter. So the idea of the the Dublin regulations in its successive formulations was precisely to avoid this kind of problem that the the places where uh, individuals arrived and often where they were claiming asylum should be the the only place where they can do that. So. You know, there were instances back in the 90s where people were uh, seeking asylum in one country and then being refused and then moving to the next country and just kind of forum shopping to to try and find somewhere to go to. And so to kind of reduce pressure on those uh, systems, uh, you have that uh, introduction of uh, points of first entry. Um, the difficulty clearly is, is that with the shift in migration, uh from the 2000s towards the south uh from the east um you ended up with a limited number of countries getting the the kind of uh the brunt of those uh entries so places like Italy as you're saying, Greece uh very clearly in 2015, Spain to a certain extent. And so you've got migrants who uh, don't necessarily want to stop in those places, countries that don't necessarily want to uh, hold on to those people or be responsible for them, um, but also countries further down the line also perfectly happy to say, well, uh, it's your responsibility, so uh, you should keep them. So this was already a problem for the UK debate, I think, uh, pre-membership, and certainly uh, uh, pre-withdrawal rather, and was certainly a you know, key part of the discussion in 2016 in the referendum about uncontrolled uh, migration and about the way in which uh, the inadequacy of border uh, controls uh, in other parts of the EU meant that uh, uh, migrants were uh, from outside the EU were coming into the UK um, without a degree of control that there was before. So I think, you know, the question really here is, you know, how this reflects a, an understanding of the issue. And I, I think one of the things that's quite striking for me around this is that this is one of the few areas where the UK was interested in European cooperation, Are uh, under Boris Johnson and as we've talked about in other episodes you know Boris Johnson had a seemingly visceral objection to anything that mentioned the word Europe or the European Union in it uh, during his time as Prime Minister and yet you know willing to do uh, deals with the French government most obviously but the other channel uh bordering states to try and limit uh illegal crossings um and you know this is a kind of an extension uh, of that and you mentioned also the the uh intervention in uh 2021 uh on the polish Belarusian uh, uh, uh dispute can you just say a bit more about that and you know how how that played out yeah, so in 2021 2022,
1: there was this Belarusian European Union slash Belarusian Polish border dispute, and basically, this is a result of a long standing complications between in the relationship between the European Union and Belarus. So, what happened was that Lukashenko hijacked in the air. A Ryanair flight which was heading to Vilnius. uh, The plane was forced to land in Minsk. Two human rights activists who were opposed to the Belarusian regime, they are Belarusian citizens, were taken off the plane. The European Union responded to this uh, airline piracy uh, with further sanctions and Lukashenko for... I think one could say this for all the stupidity is rather canny insofar as he identified a major weakness um really since 2015 2016 the european union has been divided has been seriously divided on migration and we had in during the migration crisis this attempt by the european commission to really reform dublin 3 to take it to dublin 4 and this was part of the common european asylum system now what the commission managed to do was that it ended up shooting itself in the foot by proposing mandatory quotas which basically ended the discussion on reforms and split the European Union between West, South and East. So Lukashenko was aware that the European Union was divided. He's aware that the European Union has been struggling since 2016 to find a common approach to the challenges of migration and has and that the European Union has been failing to do so is well aware of the views of particularly the Visegrad Four. So aware that all of these elements were in place, Lukashenko decided to open up air routes from Belarus uh, to sorry from Minsk to Baghdad and other countries as well. Third countries is the the European Union or the EU speak for this, and basically decided to fly people in from Iraq into minsk and then allow his border guards to start bringing people first across lithuania lithuanians uh, started to pick this up quite early on in 2021 there was notable numbers of migrants beginning to cross from countries like iraq and subsequently then uh the numbers began to increase uh, specifically across the polish border so oh, this as the european union would like to call it is uh known as instrumentalization of migration so a fa- basically a form of you could say hybrid warfare and uh as the numbers began to cross or numbers of people began to cross the polish border the polish government Uh, declared a state of emergency. You had about one third of Polish land forces on the ground involved in trying to secure the border, along with the border guard, forest guard. What was interesting, the Polish case was that the Poles did not want Frontex involved, Lithuanians, also the Latvians, too. Uh, They did have Frontex on the ground and for our listeners, uh, what was interesting too was the involvement of the Royal Engineers. So at the latter part of 2021, in November 2021, the first contingent of Royal Engineers were dispatched to Poland in order to help the Polish authorities in securing the country's border. And then a further 140 were then sent to complement this contingent in December. And what they were basically doing, uh, to paraphrase Ben Wallace, was that uh, they were there to, basically to uh, dig. And they have, since they were deployed, had helped or have been helping the Polish authorities secure their border. And that's basically building a fence. So you had the British government dispatching troops from the British army uh, to help secure the Polish border, so the border of an EU member state. So again if we were to take a look at the italian aspect in terms of migration cooperation here very much focused on say frontex and eu agency and also this bilateral approach uh this over this builds over to the aspect of cooperation with the Poles then as well and to a lesser degree to lithuania as well so you can see that the uk government is very much involved in trying to manage migration at the eu's borders because the uk is as you touched on earlier in your comment uh, is a country that is a destination for migrants it has family ties A number of migrants would have family ties with the united kingdom and so on and so forth so united kingdom is one of these pull countries it draws people to it so again you can see an attempt by number 10 dining street to try and bring reduce the number of crossings from France into the United Kingdom by dealing with the issue as as close as possible at source in this case on the Polish-Belarusian border just as they've attempted to do with the Memorandum of Understanding with the Italians.
0: Yeah I think the the instrumentalization aspect I think has been one which is increasingly part or an essential part of the discussion in Brussels circles around this issue and clearly it it's a double edged sword. On the one hand, something like the the Belarusian case where there was a, a, a pretty overt agenda of turning migrants into security threats uh, is uh, reprehensible and should be fought against. So on the other hand, it's played into uh, the hands of populists uh, across Europe who say, well, you know, just more generally, you know, there are these kind of issues there uh in the background or maybe in the foreground and so we we need to be uh taking a more uh, punitive or controlling position on regulating migration Mm -hmm. so you know that's been one of the challenges i think of the the new pact uh set of measures really that uh, i think a lot of ngos have been very concerned that the the measures to combat instrumentalization have been uh something that uh uh, likely to come back again uh, to 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 kind of haunt them, and I, th- I guess this raises the question. I, you know, I think we can we can understand in this context why the UK has an interest in talking with Italy uh, and now uh, with a place like Bulgaria uh, and indeed Turkey. Um, the question is, why does Italy? talk to the UK about this you know why this is a a downstream uh, issue for Italy that if uh, the UK uh, is going to be where these migrants want to go to why should the Italians seek to kind of have an agreement I I don't know what your, your thinking is on this
1: David I think it's a give and take process I mean let's be clear I mean the whole Brexit discussions have always been focused very much on the uk's in my view uh true perspective the uk is weak the european union is strong generally speaking yes you could say that uh, but let's look at this from other aspects we were to break down this a little bit in, in detail uk is strong in terms of defense as a strong contingent obviously and plays a very important role within nato and you can see it's has deployed very strong in, in, in the context of support for member states nato member states uh, in terms of contingents uh, in those countries. But for the Italians specifically, the UK is a net importer and is a net importer of goods and foodstuffs, number one. And number two, there is a very substantially large, uh, or a very large, I should say, a number of Italians living in the United Kingdom. So uh, these processes and bilateral relationships are generally a give-and-take process. The UK does need Italy, and it is true, the Italians don't necessarily need united kingdom regards to migration again it would be very useful for the italians to be able to allow people to leave the country rather than preventing them to enter but you do have that give and take process so that's the first thing i would say the second thing is that it fits within the narrative too of the current government as well in rome so it is true and is well remarked i mean not just georgia maloney who's the current prime minister but also her uh colleague uh, matteo salvini of lega had been talking about this idea of not just stopping the boats but having warships on the libyan coast so the idea of reducing migration generally fits in with the policies of the government in Rome at this moment in time and so it it dovetails quite nicely in that context so there is a shared view in Rome and in London that migration needs to be dealt with in a more securitized approach and that's by the way something that if the United Kingdom if we went through the EPC for example the European political community um, would find a lot I mean most countries now would agree with that. Even the humanitarian superpower like Sweden would agree with that now. I think Brussels, the 2015, 2016 migration crisis really shook Brussels and shook the access of Brussels. And so far as that initially, you would have had a much more humanitarian approach. Now that has changed and you do see political parties like Fratelli d'Italia and Lega, they are in government and they are, They have policies, those policies, which are about securing the border, will find fertile ground in London. So you have that aspect too. You have two governments, Conservative government, and you also have the coalition government, as I mentioned earlier, in Rome, uh, who do share a view that now, migration should not be treated so much as a humanitarian aspect, but much of a security aspect. So you have this coming together of policy preferences, suppose maybe a bit too much to say an ideology but nonetheless policy preferences of two governments about how to deal with this issue plus the fact again if you look at these relationships between bilateral relationships between countries uh, it's a give and take and the Italians have been asked by London can you meet those obligations that you were due, that you were supposed to meet anyway as part of the European Union can you do that for us the Italians say okay that's no problem for us we're already committed to this it's not a necessarily a difficult thing for the Italians to agree to um, but of course the Italians will come to London and say look uh, we can meet this commitment in relation to working with Frontex in relation to dealing with irregular migration in terms of our processing applications but we would like to see a win for us that win in the context of trying to have an easier relationship between you and uh because we recognize the importance that you play as a, a consumer of italian products so there are different elements there um that need to be taken into account as well but i would say specifically it's this coming together of two Uh, governments with a shared view on how to handle migration which probably would not have happened if the centre-left would have been elected in the last general election in Italy the centre-left coalition Um, but you can see the language is very much reflective of the priorities of Rome in terms again how you view migration and a security based approach and the views in london which is basically to focus very much on that security based approach
0: towards migration i I guess a a last question on this is how much of this is performative rather than substantive you know the memorandum of of understanding is it's not a it's not a legal text you know it's a kind of statement of intentions uh as much as anything um you know how much substance do you actually see behind this uh or is this really about signaling to voters to uh members in parliament about you know our willingness to to take uh tough decisions and, and be seen to be doing something as much as actually doing something
1: uh, this is a good point. I mean who carries more weight for the Italians is it going to be Brussels or is it going to be London so This could be seen very much as it's true It's a non-binding non-legal document More of I suppose enhancing relations between London and Rome is how I would see this from a diplomatic perspective Rather than having either a cut-through with the general public. I mean, I don't think in the next general election in the United Kingdom next year, uh, you're going to hear Rishi Sunak stand up and say, look, uh, I signed in a group memorandum of understanding with the Italians to cut down on migration. I don't think that's going to be said, and I don't think if you did say it, it would have much cut through. This is more about having or easing diplomatic relations, I think, between Berlin, I'm uh, sorry, not Berlin, uh, between Rome and uh, London post Brexit and to have that normalized relationship. Uh, Obviously, the Italians, like all the other member states of the European Union, did not want to see the United Kingdom to leave. And those negotiations the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation uh, agreement also were a bit difficult at times too. So this is about putting, I would say, diplomatic relations back on a more even keel and that shared policy preferences with, again, as I mentioned earlier, between the, a conservative government in London and a center-right coalition in Rome on re, in relation to migration. So that's what I think it is. I don't think it'll have any cut through I, amongst the public. This is more of a diplomatic act and to try and perhaps have greater understanding between two countries that are facing migratory challenges for sure, but beyond that, uh, this it, it's not
0: going to have too much of an effect to be honest uh, yeah i'm inclined to agree that uh you know again it's this uh, kind of a search for relevance and it's a search for a kind of a new relationship which it's you know what precisely interested in doing so in that sense uh it, it's interesting as a, a kind of a way of doing uh, things and this really rolls into a kind of a, a, a wider discussion that, that I'd like us to have talking about the rise of bilateralism uh, in British European policy. So we've got a whole raft of uh, agreements, texts, uh, things uh, between the UK and various EU member states that have been signed over the last couple of years. Uh there's some really good work from our, our colleagues at uh University of East Anglia, Clear Davis and Hussein Kasim, who've done a, kind of a run through of all of these texts and they they've found at least 30 since uh the start of 2022. So in terms of what they cover, it's probably worth just kind of rehearsing a bit of what there is. You know, the, there's a clear focus on security, and I think. Partly and substantially that's about Ukraine, uh, but also more generally, we might talk about the uh, the uh, bilateral agreements with uh, Sweden and Finland uh, around mutual uh, assistance, uh, which we'll come back to. But also we've got a bundle of agreements around uh, justice and police cooperation uh, around mutual recognition of qualifications. We've got several around uh, um, migration of various kinds, a bit like the uh, Maloney uh, MOU that we've just been discussing, and also some kind of uh, research uh, and uh, citizen-based kind of uh, contacts, given the substantial number of EU citizens in the UK and vice versa. So we seem to be in a phase that in the absence of a kind of a, a big strategy and you know perhaps this is partly a reflection of the blockage up until February with uh the Windsor framework that the UK seems to have pushed uh bilateral approaches as a, a way forward um for me this kind of i'm I'm not sure how I uh, how I feel about this and how substantial it is um but David thoughts you have on on what we're seeing here I would say it
1: is substantial. I think we need to go back to the negotiations on the withdrawal agreement. Um, And for your listeners, I I did a bit of research on this, uh, which we hope to have out uh, next year. But we looked at the preferences or the levels of salience of the member states, all 27 member states in the commission with regards to the two issues you mentioned, defence and also judicial and police cooperation. Member States rank this very highly. So I believe, and the reason why they gave for that was number one in relation to defense, they see the United Kingdom as a serious player on the defense field. And that goes back to Poland, as you saw the readiness of the MOD to send the Royal Engineers to Poland, and then also have a number of troops deployed in Lithuania, and we will get into this in a moment. Obviously, the Swedish and uh, Finnish uh, mutual assistance agreements signed by the United Kingdom uh, to provide mutual assistance to Sweden and Finland as well. And then on police cooperation as well, you have a number of police forces or from the different member states uh, recognise the importance of cooperation fighting criminal gangs. And that's linked partially to the number, of course, of people living in the European, or sorry, living in the United Kingdom from the 27 member states as well. So you do have this uh, aspect of dealing with uh, and criminality, by the way, is cross-border as well. You obviously have British crime gangs in, for example, operating in Spain, etc. So you had member states attach a high level of importance to those issues. So I think actually this is very important, and I do think there is substance behind it. Intelligence sharing. Uh, Police cooperation again crime is cross-border and the second point as I mentioned earlier, and I think this is something to mention as well I mean this was shut down very early and I think the British perhaps did not play their hand too well in this but the idea that the United Kingdom didn't leverage its uh, its defense spending its substantial Military weight in those negotiations by saying we are a major political or major military power here. We have the ability to You know contribute significantly to the defense of Europe or something I think the May government missed but that's perhaps uh, an issue to look at at a different point but the Member States in the European Union see the United Kingdom as a serious military player and that has been attested to by the fact that the United Kingdom provided or decided to provide a security uh, agreement with sweden and finland and also of course its continued role within the nato framework deploying troops to the baltics and it should also not be forgotten as well the united kingdom uh has been helping to train ukrainian troops really uh, since uh, 2014 after the illegal annexation of Crimea. they were on the ground uh helping to train partly train uh the ukrainians especially in relation to the use of anti-tank weapons such as n-laws etc so and by the way that was seen by eastern member states naturally poland the baltics they've uh, saw the united kingdom again the commitment to europe if not to the european union but to europe and the ability to be on the ground and seem to be this very dependable uh, security partner, but not just a dependable security partner, but a secure, dependable security partner with significant weight. French um, have a or had up to this point, up until the war in the Ukraine, an ambivalent view in regards to Russia. Germany, for obvious reasons, not a serious military player, and the United States has been increasingly distracted in the pacific so who do these member states such as the baltic member states poland turn to uh they can turn to a dependable ally which is the united kingdom who again just to reiterate is seen to be a significant military actor in europe and as such that is something that the member states see as a added value that the United Kingdom can bring to the to the table with regards to general security within Europe and maybe not directly, but indirectly, the European Union as well. So they are serious points. and I think these bilateral agreements do matter for the member states because the United Kingdom is a serious player on defense, but also to as well again, uh, you know, Criminality is cross border now. So we have Europol, for example, it would be a curious omission to exclude the United Kingdom from any uh, cooperation with police forces as police forces are dealing with uh, criminality not just cross-border within the European Union, but outside the European Union as well, across different countries. So it it would make logical sense to that. And the United Kingdom is a significant player in terms of resources that it has, and also intelligence gathering, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd very much see this to be as two very strong points that member states very much saw as an important contribution that the United Kingdom can make. And they take those agreements, those bilateral agreements quite seriously.
0: But it's interesting, isn't it, that in both those cases, there's a clear logic of cooperation and uh, integration that's there. And yet the UK makes a conscious and explicit decision not to involve security cooperation in the, the TCA negotiations. It says, you know, we want to go for very bare bones free trade agreements seemingly you know i think this is the david frost line is that we don't want to have hostages to fortune that if we start throwing in security then you're going to hold up this whilst you know you know it's just more things where you can be held up on in the negotiation so we'll come back to that the second aspect on secure on justice and police cooperation one of the consequences of leaving the eu is the removal of the e- uk from access to assorted uh europe-wide databases so uh, you know a lot of these uh bilateral agreements have been about regaining access to partial uh parts of you know national databases which isn't the same um, but which is an attempt to replicate that so Again, we're kind of in a, a strange situation where the UK simultaneously has decided it doesn't want to pursue Europe-wide integration, even though clearly there's a, an economy of scale in in both security and in justice um, um, fields, uh, and yet it. Simultaneously wants to get involved and demonstrate its uh, involvement, its engagement um, and sees the value in pursuing this in a bilateral uh, case. Um, Moreover, you know, we think about security. You know, we've mentioned now this uh, set of security guarantees, mutual defence to Sweden and to Finland, which was done by Boris Johnson at the point where there was a, a hiatus between them announcing their intention to join NATO them actually joining NATO, and in the case of Sweden, still uh, stymied by uh, the government in Ankara, and that looks set to change following the the re-election of uh, uh, Erdogan uh, at the weekend. So we, of course, remember that security in in, uh, Europe is already highly integrated through the NATO system, which provides for a degree of integration which far exceeds that that we see in uh, in the EU um, and yet uh, that's that kind of uh, sleeping dog of British uh, international policies that they seem very happy to engage in NATO integration but not in EU na- integration uh, even when it's on similar kinds of issues.
1: Yeah I think the issue between the difference between NATO and say the ESDP for example is that with NATO you have United States you have Canada you have traditional you could say allies of the United Kingdom and you don't necessarily have that element of mm-hmm. integration Whereas, at least in my view, what I see in the British press is this idea of having Brussels, even though NATO (laughs) headquarters are in Brussels. Um, Right, yeah. yeah, You have this view that uh, Brussels, and that's basically a code for the commission, you will have commission bureaucrats deciding where on a big map of Europe, where you're going to start deploying British troops, you know? which is not the case at all but i think the united kingdom is worried where because military integration of the european union is kind of or was seen probably still is seen as kind of the last mm-hmm. attempt towards a federal europe you know and i think when it comes to that security aspect and the nato aspect or sorry the defense aspect and the police and cooperation uh, aspect within the european union at least from british policy maker's perspective okay this is the road towards a federal system and we're absolutely staying well clear of that and second of all i mean what is going to what would be a sort of european version of nato it's a mirror image without the united states without the united kingdom without canada uh, and also firstly without the uk and the us two major military players but also who's going to carry the weight of all of this you know i mean you germany which (laughs) we could do a whole podcast on in the state of the german military uh it's not going to be so it's going to be very much led by the french and i'm not sure the united kingdom wants to go down some sort of road where you would have very much a french orientated uh, military alliance of the European Union that does not necessarily dovetail with British policy. As I mentioned a bit earlier, France has Macron, but Macron is, by the way, a continuation of this have, in terms of French presidents, and France generally has had a very ambivalent view towards NATO. I mean, remember, de Gaulle took France out of NATO, and so, or sorry, towards Russia, and that meant that, of course, that de Gaulle at during the 60s, if I'm not mistaken, took NATO out of, or took France out of NATO. So uh, France has had this traditionally ambivalent view towards Russia that does not dovetail with the United Kingdom um, and its view of Russia. So you have that issue. And then of course, what does uh, European defence policy mean? Well, it means you're gonna have this whole spill-offs in terms of an EDA, European Defence Agency, the European Defence Fund. And that means, I mean, there may be some elements here whereby the uk industries when we think about bae systems for example may be able to benefit through contracts but who are managing these contracts these agencies etc etc so you have this never-ending growth you could say in bureaucracy so there is some i would say perhaps uh, i think there's some argument to be made by the uk an argument that is correct and so far as that this whole defense aspect with regards to the european union it it will lead either towards a more federal approach and this growth in agencies and dragging the UK into these types of agencies in terms of say under development etc. which may restrain the United Kingdom. Plus the fact is, what is this? What would this European alliance be? Who's going to be the heavy lifters for this? You know, uh, so you know those all those elements coming together. So I think that's really why the uk is ambivalent and i think to be fair to the british i think they have a case to be there is a case to be made there and i think they're right to be a bit careful about that and as then on the second issue then of course on police cooperation i mean we've seen again i think the united kingdom really has been i mean it was outside of schengen as we all know so i mean again this idea of deepening cooperation on the police field again can be seen perhaps by policymakers in london as this continuation or this possible avenue towards a more federal europe and that's something that london wants to steer very clear from so having these bilateral relations then means that you're having cooperation with member states of the european union Up to a certain point outside of brussels i.e outside the commission's framework the eu treaty framework away from brussels bureaucrats and i think this is where this sweet uh point for the united kingdom getting that cooperation either through established frameworks like nato which are far more effective Member states, as I mentioned earlier, see this uh, UK's contribution within NATO and, generally speaking, European defence to be very uh, it's very well regarded by these member states. Uh, It carries significant weight, and so and for the United Kingdom, cooperation we work with these countries, we deploy our troops uh, on request to these countries, we provide assistance if needed uh, through the NATO framework, as well established. But we also have the united states we have the commission it's not a project that leads to a federal system and it's not in the hands of the brussels bureaucrats in the commission or through an agency and the same then can be said for police cooperation as well we admit that we will lose some access to databases etc but once we're outside the eu treaty framework we can get something and some degree please cooperation bilaterally with these member states and again this is the sweet point because again we're outside of the treaty and we're outside of control quote unquote from uh, brussels and those pesky brussels bureaucrats
0: this is the, the the real question this is where my ambivalence about this approach comes is that As we see in many of these texts, we've got references to the obligations of EU membership for the EU member states or to the obligations under the trade and cooperation agreements or in some cases the withdrawal agreement. So there's, there's a constraint on member states on what they are willing or even able to do in this kind of bilateral mode because they're already entangled within the EU system, which is going to impose quite severe constraints on substantive action. And so again how it comes back to this question about how opportunistic is this set of uh, agreements as you said, you know, in the case of Maloney if we return to that starting point, you know, if it had been a different prime minister in uh, power in Rome, we wouldn't have got that, you know, it served both sides' agendas to to sign a, an MOU. Um, Likewise, we kind of get opportunistic kind of things, which is very piecemeal rather than something that looks like a systematic uh, mapping out of the terrain. So, you know, again, today, you know, if we're going to get this new uh, agreement with Bulgaria and with Moldova, um, maybe even with Turkey, you know, something that just looks like, well, as things pop up on the radar and we're in the area, we should sign something and do it like that rather than a a strategic plan. So, you know, does this work for the UK and does this work for the EU? It works for the UK insofar as it works
1: in that in certain areas. Number one, again, defense migration. And again, of course, as you mentioned, to there is a limitation in relation to how far the united kingdom can push this so yes it works well because of the uk because you happen to have again a government that shares the same views on migration in as you do same views on migration in london as you do in uh, rome so if that was, again, if there was a central-left government in Rome, that would probably not be likely to happen. Are we going to see, for example, if we'd extend this argument, memorandum of understanding to say Germany? Probably not. Uh, so there is limitations to this bilateral approach uh, insofar as that the United Kingdom, I suppose, has to be a bit lucky with who is in government in the national capitals or has to deal with memorandum of understandings that are very limited or sorry, limited to very to very specific policy areas, again, say, defense and migration. Um, does it benefit the European Union? Well, yes and no. I mean, if you were sitting back in Brussels and you were being frustrated by the approach by the Italians in relation to a lack of cooperation on, say, Frontex, having the British come in also and say, uh, look, we think that you, Italy, uh, you government in Rome need to have a much more regular system in relation to handling migration you need to work closer with frontex isn't a bad thing it's not a negative for sure um how much influence again can london have over Rome? Uh, again it depends if you look at a broader picture and say if you specifically look at the memorandum of understanding on say migration not so much but then again london has different tools and its toolbox again and it is a net importer it is a country that is home to many italian citizens so we can have some degree of influence over uh rome and that's not a bad thing in the context of brussels is the uk going to become a competitor for uh say uh to towards the european or against the european union with third countries so for example the turkey turkey example Uh, No, but again, all countries now are trying to grapple with this migratory issue. So if the UK is willing to go in and to speak to the Turkish authorities, just like Brussels did in 2016 with the EU Turkey uh, Association statement, uh, which is basically the... (laughs) EU speak for the EU-Turkey deal of 2016. uh, And is going to go in and say, look, we can provide you some assistance. We're going to work closely with the Turkish authorities. We'd like to work closely with you, i.e. you, the Turkish authorities, in relation to handling this issue. Um, We can provide degree of data for you. I mean, that's helpful for the European Union, because again, even though the spotlight is off the Eastern Mediterranean route, uh, we know that criminal gangs are operating again these criminal gangs are transnational they cross borders not just within the european union but outside that too and they transnational gangs are operating in turkey and they are getting people smuggling people via the eastern mediterranean route through to to greece that's still happening by the way i mean the uh route is quote unquote shut down and yes about 90% of the crossings at the time were reduced but that leaves around 10 percent of those crossings you know so uh, it's also beneficial for the european union too specifically on the eastern mediterranean route and also for the greeks by the way it should be said as well because uh this is quite a controversial element but there have been allegations of pushback and why these allegations or why member states coast guards may be pushing back people is that they're trying to prevent people to enter so if you've got the national crime agency operating or providing assistance to the turkish authorities then you can prevent this pushback on the sea and you can try and break up these smuggling gangs in turkey and maybe also allow i mean the turkish do this themselves by the way Uh, the turks also do pushbacks on their own border Um, so it kind of also tries to reduce the number of people crossing the mediterranean which is beneficial to the European Union. And hopefully then may help Brussels, though it is very unlikely, uh, but may help if Brussels can say to the Visigard 4, we are seeing a significant reduction in number of crossings, helped partly by the National Crime Agency operating in, say, Turkey. Uh, they can say to Visigard 4, look, we're seeing this reduction now, uh you know but let time now to go for reforms for dublin four let's go for dublin four now so there could be some minor uh benefits for the commission in relation to the broader picture of trying to get an agreement with the vis four with regards to a deal in relation to reforming uh dublin three i.e its successor having dublin four agreed by the Visigard 4 i mean it's not a major contribution but it could be uh, a uk contribution to to getting an agreement in Brussels on migration which I mean it wouldn't be major would be minor but I think it will be beneficial to Brussels to have that uh, to have some sort of cooperation there to help reduce the numbers of people crossing so again working with third countries and again as I mentioned earlier uh, perhaps again not a major tool but maybe a minor pressure point by London to get Rome to try and fully deal with uh or to fully implement its own asylum procedures to ensure that irregular migrants who are crossing the central mediterranean route are processed within italy when they arrive in italy rather than wave through uh to france and also ensuring that the italians cooperate fully with frontex as well so there are minor benefits here for the united kingdom and also for the european union uh, specifically the commission who are seeking and DG Home, which are specifically trying to get an agreement, uh, and the commissioner too, of course, are specifically trying to get an agreement on reforms to uh, Dublin 3, i.e. Dublin 4. Um, so, yes, but not there are benefits, but I would say not substantially large payoffs for the commission, but maybe something to grease the wheels uh, to get an agreement uh, on that uh, reforms to
0: CES 4. Or Dublin, for I should say. I am conscious we almost running towards an hour, so we're, we're going to wrap it up there. But I think yeah, maybe the the thing we should think about here, and I think we've got plenty. We can certainly be coming about the security issue, and we might think about the impact of uh, the war in Ukraine uh, on the UK's approach to the EU as well. Um, you know for me i think the key point here that you're stressing is that the uk remains entangled in these issues with the rest of europe so partly about the eu but also just you know europe in the broader sense and so that involvement happens somewhere you know through some medium um and so you know potentially this is part of that package the the question Here really is, you know, that relationship between the UK-EU relationship, narrowly, and then those bilateral relations that uh, exist around it. And which I think it's important to say we had bilateral relations uh, even during the period of UK membership of the EU. You know, there was plenty of other stuff going on uh, around the edges. So I think. You know, we might think about how that works, but uh, again, it's that question of how that develops over time, the coherence, sustainability. So, you know, just to flag something that I think we'll come back to, another point is we've got the uh, smart borders arrangements coming in for the EU, um, which will provide for uh, fingerprint checks uh, and uh, registering uh, non-EU nationals. Uh, on the system. So it's likely to provide a a major moment of disruption. Um, That's been a bit on hold, uh, but will be coming uh, soon enough. So I think we're going to come back to this issue narrowly about migration. But I think also just thinking about the mechanics of the relationship, the fora that we use to pursue it is also going to be part of the picture. David, I don't know if you want to say any last couple of words on this
1: yeah i think firstly we will certainly come back to the uh smart borders element and particularly the ees which is the entry exit system it will be interesting to see how that develops but very much i would see that as deepening and maybe i mean we didn't have really time to touch on this whether or not this was a focused element or a kind of scattergun approach um and maybe now it's scattergun approach but maybe this will start to evolve to being a bit more strategic as time goes on time will tell obviously but i think those are the two areas really to watch for developments in the bilateral relationship between the united kingdom and the uh, member states of the eu i.e defense which again as i mentioned earlier is a very strong component of the united for the united kingdom in terms of its contribution via nato it is a military player in the European Union st- stage, France yes, but an ambivalent player up until recently towards Russia. The United States distracted in relation to the Pacific and the rise of China. So the UK will remain a very important player from the Brussels perspective and from the member states perspective in terms of its contribution to defence of Europe. And second of all, as mentioned again earlier um, in relation to migration. Uh, Criminal gangs, smuggling gangs, cross uh, transnational gangs—they not just across borders within the European Union, but externally too, uh, with third countries as well. So the UK again will be focused on that because migration is a salient issue within the UK, uh, with, amongst the UK uh, voters, and again that is beneficial, and you can see a kind of sweet spot whereby it is an issue of concern for UK voters, and therefore an issue of concern for Number Ten while at the same time it is an issue of concern across the capitals of the member states and increasingly so by the way it should be said on the centre-left as well. A good example of that is uh, Denmark and the Danish centre-left government, which has taken a much stronger view and actually following up very closely to the UK in terms of its Rwanda plan, which is an interesting point, which we may touch on as well, how the Danish centre-left and the Nordic centre-left more generally is shifting right on migration. But uh, that's probably a different story for a different day.
0: Indeed. So, if we want to uh, uh, heading for all of this, the UK has left the EU but isn't leaving Europe. Um, Indeed. I think
1: think someone, a former resident of Rotterdam, said that. I can't
0: remember. I think several of them did. So, uh, we will uh, wrap it up there. Uh, Thank you to David and thank you to you, the listener. And we will come back to you soon uh, on this.